Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. She leans into the mirror and begins to draw her self-portrait. First the eyes are rimmed with black, then she covers her lips with a surreal red that gives them a life of their own. This program features the work of 2012 writer Mitsu Sundval. Curator Sean Wong sat down with her in the studio. Tell me a little bit about where that desire to tell your own family story comes from. Well, my mother is kind of an atypical Japanese, and she loves to talk. She's always told all these stories about the family, you know, these endless stories where we would kind of roll our eyes and, you know, children would oh, there she goes again. But in some ways also she fostered a certain love of language so that I sat up and listened to the way things were said, the way things were told. How do you approach what you choose to write about? Well, this is, I guess, you know, I've taken, oh, God, it's almost 20 years writing this thing, and there's your community always looking over your shoulder <laughs> to see if I portray Japanese in the proper light or, you know. This is a generation of uh, immigrants from Asia that went through a lot, and their, their stories, a lot of their stories aren't really known in uh, their entirety, you know, without stereotypes. And, you know, the camp experiences, which is kind of the, a lot of people say, oh, my parents never talked about the camps. They were ashamed or whatever. My mother never stopped talking about it. And so I have a section in the book which includes some of her stories. Now we'll hear a selection from Mitsu's live reading. One evening in 1953, my mother, grandma, and big sister Amy go to the Forbidden City in all Oriental, that's how we were called then those days, Oriental nightclub in San Francisco's Chinatown to see, respectively, their niece, granddaughter, and cousin, Cheryl Nagata Lee, perform in the chorus line. This Chinese nightclub was a novel attraction in the 30s to 50s, for white clientele, much like the Cotton Club in Harlem. Okay. No eyebrows. She doesn't have any eyebrows. There are the usual five holes upon the blank face to look through nightclub mirrors, inhale white shoulders perfume, swallow Chinese crack crab, and spit out the Lord's name in vain. But no eyebrows. Reaching for the bottle of perfume, she immerses herself in a heavy mist of white gardenias and white roses thickened with spice. Goddamn bastard, I'll show him who's a yellow chink. Jap, I'm a Jap. And my shoulders are white, goddammit. White shoulders, 25 goddamn dollars an ounce, you bastard. In the mirror, she sees her grandmother seated behind her right shoulder. It's okay, Grandma. I'm just talking to myself. <laughs> this Hakujin guy tried to cut me off a parking space on Grand Avenue for crying out loud. Not even in New York City did I hear such language. She reaches for the bottle of scotch among the code cream, makeup in five shades of flesh, and eyebrow pencils in ten shades of black. She pours a glass of the scotch. It has to be Cuddy Sark. Once she asked the bartender for a Cuddy Sark, and she knew by looking at the glass that it was some kind of black and white with the Scotty dogs on it. <laughs> she almost threw it back in his face. 
Just a few minutes, Grandma. The show's an hour long, and then we'll all go out to China Meshi, okay? We'll have crab and those shiny noodles and the hum you for Aunt Benny. You know, stinky fish and chopped pork. That's Auntie's favorite. Oh, I, I forgot you can't eat pork. For crying out loud, Grandma, how can you stand those Seventh-day Adventists? Nothing but little obachans in gray eating nothing but vegemite and tofu. How can you stand it? Grandma sits up just behind her granddaughter, admiring the clipper ship on the bottle of scotch. <laughs> the name of her savior is taken in vain several times, but the words fall on the porches of her ears without entering. She adjusts her hearing aid. Everyone's voice was getting further away. Jesu tatsukete kurasai. Jesus, save me, she murmured in her sleep. Grandma, do you hear me? Oh, what's the use of talking to someone who can't hear and then can't understand? When are you going to learn English, Grandma? You've been here over 50 years, for Christ's sake. I've been living in Chinatown for two years, and now I speak the goddamn language. <laughs> she pauses to tweeze out three millimeters of hair remaining on her left brow. The aroma of white shoulders carries her to some distant place, far from the dressing room of a Chinatown nightclub far from another chorus girl's scent of taboo. Looking in the mirror, she sees her grandmother. I love you, chi Grandma. Sane chibi, sighs Grandma, smiling. She grasped a lot of meaning from the sound of a voice. After her conversion in Japan by the Salvation Army, she had contemplated the difference between the sacred and the profane, but now she felt it didn't matter. She noticed that the profane often seeped from the pursed lips of the pious, and in the eyes of the most depraved, there was always something sacred waiting to be retrieved. There were good people who ate pork chops, and there were bad people who ate only vegetables. <laughs> she thought of her daughter Sabue, Cheryl's mother. Where did she get those beautiful legs? Not like her own daikon ashi, short and thick like a Japanese radish. All Sabue wanted to do was ride bareback on the beach at Carmel with those wild boys. And look what happened. Eighteen years old with a baby she did not want. Is that the baby's fault? Poor Chibi, she sighed, using the Japanese diminutive that means small. The young mother Sabue shrugged in disgust. No matter what I put on her, no matter how pretty, she doesn't look good. And she never smiles. Oh, well, I guess it's my punishment. Subway turned away from the child. Chubby tried not to listen to the words, doesn't look good, never smiles, my punishment. At four years old, she knew the sounds of those words and what they meant. Cheryl sits up before the mirror. Oh my God, 15 minutes before showtime. I better hustle my bustle. Someone said Frank Sinatra's out there. Where's Aunt Benny? Did she bring Amy too? Oh my God, the whole goddamn family. She leans into the mirror and begins to draw her self-portrait. First, the eyes are rimmed with black. Then she covers her lips with a surreal red that gives them a life of their own. The eyelashes are glued on next, like a pharaoh's feather fans. They flap a breeze onto her cheeks. At last, the eyebrows, marking the text of her face with clues to her sadness, anger, or happiness. Grandma stares at her granddaughter's image in the mirror. Ma, she mutters, extraordinary. 
and how does she keep the little round covers on her chichis from falling off? <laughs> they must be pasted on somehow. Tie hand desnet. My, how uncomfortable. She lays the pink beaded sweater on her granddaughter's bare shoulders. That's okay, Grandma. It's hot in here. How can you stand it? Grandma, take your coat off for crying out loud. Those goddamn nuns at the convent. They made you wear long stockings on 80-degree days, for Christ's sake. I was getting a rash and throwing up, but what did they care? Better to get sick and die than let your knees see the light of day. <laughs> for taking my stockings off, I had to kneel on hard peas all morning. The Pope said, Short skirts may be more comfortable, but they are dangerous for the soul. <laughs> Get a load of him, dangerous for the soul. Can you beat that? After three years in the convent, Mama said if I was good, I could come home when I was 14. I finally heard from her. It was in the merry month of May, 1942, five months after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. We were going to a concentration camp, for God's sake, just for being Japanese. What World War II had to do with our family was a mystery to me. Mama could care less about politics, and my stepfather, L.M., half Japanese and half Italian, called the emperor a goddamn Jap. So it's not like the United States government had to worry about our family bowing to the emperor and handing over all the top secrets we knew. <laughs> and Grandma, they threw her in the goddamn camp, too, while her two sons joined the U.S. Army. Nothing made any sense anymore. Got me out of that convent, all right, but into another frying pan. They shipped us out to Poston in the middle of the Arizona desert and dumped us into one room of an army barrack. Mama, L.M., Louie, Freddie, John Boy, and me, of course. That was dynamite. I knew I would be crazy if I had to stay there for three more years. According to L.M., I couldn't do anything right. My hair was too long, my skirt too short, my lipstick too bright. Every day there was something wrong with me. And the goddamn sun was burning the tops of my shoulders black. Some people say I was incorrigible or some such dog poop, but I don't give a rat's ass what anybody says. I couldn't stand it anymore. Since L.M. was such a big shot with the marrying old fathers, he sent me to the convent in Tarrytown, New York. The day after her 14th birthday in 1942, Cheryl was permitted to leave the Poston concentration camp for citizens of Japanese ancestry. Incorrigible behavior, her stepfather said. She was shipped to Mount St. Michael's School for Girls on New York's Hudson River. Cheryl made her way into New York City and began hat checking at Sammy Lee's Chinatown nightclub. On her 18th birthday, she joined the all-Chinese chorus line, China Dow Review. After the war, every Christmas, she would call Los Angeles, but her mother was always at Mass or on some mission to feed the poor and hungry of her parish. The sisters praised the good works her mother was doing at the Lamb of God House for Unmarried Mothers. Cheryl hadn't seen her in 10 years and stopped calling. Auntie, you better go get a seat. Do you really think Grandma should watch? Okay, but sit way in the back. I don't want to see my grandma while I'm up there in a goddamn chorus line. <laughs> oh, well, what else bad can God do to my life already but strike me dead, for Christ's sake? 
at 22 with my pasties on. <laughs> the fake smile she forces onto the front of her head is a fire screen she pulls down to keep from being burned by stairs. She's the third girl on the right between Lana Wong and Nikki Lewis. Tammy Toy isn't there that night. She was caught walking out of Mel's radio emporium with the TV and was spending her, the month in jail. <laughs> what a bunch of losers. Me, I've got plans. I'm going to marry a rich man with a big house with bird fountains everywhere. I'm going to have three mink coats. I will drive up to Mama's old house in Los Angeles in my white Cadillac and scream 25 Hail Marys until <laughs> she comes out and says, well, hello, chubby. <laughs> there she was with her mother's beautiful legs, her mother's youthful daring and grace. She had done everything her mother had wanted to do. She became a dancer. She drank the best scotch and wore the best perfume. She married rich. She was her mother's daughter after all. Now in 1990 at age 80, Cheryl's mother drifts in and out at the moment. She looks at the fading sepia photographs of a 1930s day. Chiffon dresses, hair marcelled into waves, lips tied up in red bows, silken legs in a starlet pose. And who is that unhappy little girl over to one side? What a face, never smiling. A knot tightens in her stomach. The old woman crosses herself and puts the photographs away. She will never take them out again. And now, ladies and gentlemen, San Francisco's own Forbidden City presents Miss Cheryl Lee as the Playgirl of the Orient. Grandma sits in the back, her gray head almost obscured in cigarette smoke. The music is loud and full of brass, but she can't hear the tune. Glasses of tea-colored liquid are clinking. The girl with the pink ostrich fan floating over her white shoulders is Cheryl. Amy elbows her mother. Don't look now, but there's Frank Sinatra. Ma, I said, don't look, and you swivel your head like a stupid fan. Oh, embarrassing. <laughs> she giggles again. One of Cheryl's eyebrows is way crooked. Did you ever see such a fake smile? The spotlights are blinding, and no one in the chorus line can see Grandma waving at her granddaughter. <laughs> Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2012 curator of this program is Sean Wong. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Mo Preventure. Recording engineers are C.J. Lazenby, Tom Stiles, and Mo Preventure. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by Rachel Matthews, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.